And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we work to make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, politics, and memes. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Contrary to popular memes, the new year did not bring about the end to many of 2020's problems. In fact, the digital and physical landscape are ever more intertwined. Yet, as the digital oozes into the physical, we are each experiencing a different version of our reality. This week highlights the heavily divided factions of our current moment, from the upcoming Trump's Last Stand rally on January 6th to the Georgia Senate runoff election and the coronavirus pandemic influencing nearly every aspect of our life. Our institutions and faculties are being challenged. Jamie and I take a stab at making sense of common archetypes and digital meme diets, from God Emperor to Pepe the Frog, and the danger of corporate memes. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and our Substack. For more information on our upcoming podcasts, salons, and live events, you can visit us at digitalvoid.media. What happens after God Emperor Trump? You know what's funny is like how <laughs> how the term God Emperor like has kind of lost its meaning in the last few weeks, if not last few months, um, post-election. And it's not like they don't still believe Trump is the God Emperor, but it just definitely doesn't have the oomph <laughs> that it kind of had when he was winning because there was just so much winning. Um, I think it's also a misunderstanding of what God Emperor is. For, for a lot of these followers. And I'm not sure what's going to happen with the, the terminology post-Trump because, so God Emperor is a meme term for these chuds, okay? And I'm going to refer to these chuds directly as chuds in this case because I think the term God Emperor or the term of being a Pepe or whatever is really part of the darker parts of the web, part of the more niche or esoteric parts of the Trump universe. Whereas like, if you're just a Trump fan you're, and you call yourself a Republican or conservative, you're not likely going to be calling Trump a God Emperor. You're, you might know that he's called that, but you're probably not walking around telling your friends that because your friends are probably like, dude, come on, what are you doing? Get out of your basement. And again, not to say that all the chuds are in the basement, but there's a very specific subset of young white male that treats Trump in a way that they want somebody to be, but not who he is, but he fulfills that need for them at this current moment. So have you ever heard, let me just ask you, have you ever heard somebody call him God Emperor Trump, like to your face? I've never heard it to my face. I've been called a soy boy, but that's the extent. <laughs> I have too. I mean, I've, because of my last name, I very often get anti-Semitic things said to me, like a lot. Right. Um, but usually I've not really heard, at least in public. And I had an actual fascist in my classroom and he never used the term God Emperor Trump, but it's persistent enough that you could tell it exists. And so what I think it is, it's kind of like their terminology. So to them, God Emperor Trump is their man. So in the Pepe film, they actually do a pretty decent um, explanation of our guy. That's kind of where this comes from. So in the Pepe film, which highly, highly recommend, I would say it's possibly my favorite documentary of 2020. Um, it, it, it explains at one point that from the occultist in the film, that our guy is the moment of what was how did he refer to it it was like um the manifesting moment where he was like there's a certain moment when you make something happen and you kind of manifest it and so a lot of the trump underground meme edge lords and edge folk who are like in there like in it 
they believed, they truly believed they manifested Trump into office. And so they did that, as we've talked about on previous occasions, and we've talked about this in my writing, in our workshops, that the manifestation comes from a very odd and esoteric set of circumstances that happen to create an alignment with Trump at the exact same moment. And we've talked about this before. It's Pepe, the Keck, the uh, Kekistan, the racist undertones for the location, um, the idea of the, the god emperor in ancient Egypt of Keck, and it happened to be a frog. And so our guy is when they believe that their troll king became president. And so they they called him our guy. And so it's our guy. It's because it's a man from the, the murk, a man from the web, a man from the dirt. And that is fascinating because they think in their minds that this guy is theirs. He he's he's for them and from them. It's kind of like that he they they built him and therefore he's their thing. So he as a god emperor, he is not really a god or an emperor, but to them they believe him to be the manifest of a current version of what they wanted as our guy. And what that is is a significant need for leadership in what we in our English terms non-chud speak, we see that and we interpret that as the disenfranchised are seeking a franchisor. That's what it really comes down to. So the reason why you and I have never heard the term like God Emperor to our faces is because it's not a term you would hear in public. What you would hear is terms of being like, I have I have found a leader that represents me. So did you ever hear that? Have you ever heard them say that? I have not heard them say that specifically, but they found someone that represents their day-to-day life. That's why the call to action for January 6th is it's time to protect him because he's mm-hmm. protected us. Yes. Uh, Travis View had an article in New York Magazine called Trump finally gave QAnon what it always wanted, respect. And that, I think, is what, if we're seeking some sort of meaning behind the God Emperor approach, they they feel that Trump represents them, but not because he is a representative, as in he doesn't, what they want isn't what he gives. What they really want, they don't know what they want. What they want is like what everybody else wants. Rights, they want food, they want access to healthcare. They want the things that the majority of people actually do want. But in terms of what their representation is, is that on their online personas in sheer amounts of boredom, what they really want is to troll people. They want to make others hurt because they hurt. You know, they, they have a pain. So they feel that like trolling or owning the libs is really like a retribution. And it's like no joke. Like that is what I've been studying trolling since Andrew Arnheimer, the the neo-Nazi weave has been doing this since like forever. And there's a really great article. I guess you put this in the show notes uh, for 2008 uh, about trolling that Matthias Schwartz wrote. And it was about the malevolence of the web. And it's not new. Trump is not new. Trumpism isn't new. Disenfranchisement isn't new. But what is new is the fact that he became president. And so I think what, what you and I have to keep in our, eye, our eyes on is what happens when the person who gives you the most amount of respect goes to the background, when they're no longer foregrounded any longer. Like, what exactly does that look like? So the January 6th incident or uh, idea or episode is meaningless. It's, it doesn't matter if there's a rally or if the, regardless what happens is that Biden becomes president. It's, it is what happens. But they need to show, like you said, they need to show that they're going to return the favor of what Trump's done for them. They believe that if he's st- he's been there to defend them for so long and show them respect, that they feel like this is their last chance to show respect. 
And what does that look like? How does one pay respect to a god emperor who has flagrantly pretended to care about the everyman, but has truly not done anything to extend a level of care that meets material or economic reality? That That is answerable because you're right. Your, your approach is right. He's done nothing for them. He's done everything and nothing. And by everything, I mean that he's triggered the libs, so to speak, which I hate that term, but he's 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 upset people that don't like him. So they feel that's good. They, they are like, that's great. It works. That's that's exactly what we love to do. Now we see this at the macro scale. This is a imagine they're trolling, but scaled up. You know, that's that's how they feel. But when respect is to be given, it's more um, performative respect. It's. Um, and, and don't don't think this is going away either. Like performative respect means that they've got to show that like his existence continues in their hearts, <laughs> I guess is the way to think of it, um, that they want to show that like he, it was not all for naught. There, there are going to be detractors. There's going to be people who have lost it and felt like they've been thrown out into the heaps like Milo Yiannopoulos. But for the common populist voter of Trump, they feel like, okay, this man showed us what it's like to have a leader that really upsets other people. So we have to show him. So their goal, whether it be January 6th, March 30th, June of 2022, whatever date that may be, it's going to be whatever they can do to upset people. So they're going to take trolling that once existed in a very digital soul space and make it a very physical space. And we saw that with the practice of the threepers and the proud boys and the militias that have been moving to the state capitals. These are not these aren't just them performing their acts of what they believe to be their rights, but it's really an exhibition or a performance, a performance of this of the miasma of the message boards, whatever the stench that they're working with within those message boards has reached its exhaustive state. It, it no longer can exist solely in a message board environment. It has to exist in a physical space. No matter what happens on January 6th, if we have another incident like a Kyle Rittenhouse or if nothing happens at all, how do we interpret, going back to the beginning, this god-emperor archetype? How do we begin to approach this in a meaningful way that doesn't demonize the other? Wow. That's a fantastic question. Um, to approach this in a meaningful way, I think I think the best way is like we have to read QAnon casualties <laughs> on Reddit. Um, and that that message board is extremely sad. It is the place where people go to basically lament lost family members to the cult, to the the ideology that is QAnon. And sometimes many of these people are very, very, very upset by loss of family members. These family members are really close and important to them, but have become so far down the rabbit hole they can't see any longer. And this also, I think, will end when the pandemic starts ending, when we start getting the vaccine, we're out in public. I always say this over and over again. Uh, once we have access to an objective reality and an ability to kind of compare and contrast what real is, this will dissipate slightly. The pandemic is not helpful because it creates a... Uh, insular system, like they can't really see outside of it. Much of the advice on QAnon casualties and in David Nywert's red pill, blue pill is compassion. And so I think a lot of people have agreed and not acknowledged that one of the best tactics for disarming or dissuading people from believing that the God Emperor will return is to listen, is to actually just listen and to explain it, and this is the term they always use, explain it to me like I'm a, fi I'm a five-year-old. Explain to me, what, when you say there's fraud, or when you say that there's um, files that you're keeping, 
explain it. Don't ask them for proof. Don't ask them to show you. Don't ask them to do anything, but just explain it. Because sometimes like that's where that objective reality comes in. By saying it out loud, it kind of gives semblance to what the reality of that actually is. And so when you ask like somebody what a, a god emperor may be or what that may be to them, there are other places to find that. Now, is that 100% successful? No, I would say there's people that are long gone. There are people that are truly sold. There's also people that have put up such defense mechanisms that it's really hard for them to acknowledge this. Uh, let me give you a strong example with that. So young men, let's say the fascist that was in my class. And I, I use that seriously. Like this young man who was in my class was an actual fascist. He identified as fascist. Um, he His video game characters, he would play Let's Plays in my YouTubers class. And he was like a fascist. Like he would play like war games, but he was like, a, he enjoyed fascism. That was just his thing. And it was very disturbing. And I didn't know in many ways how to stop this from happening. And and as I've explained to you, I've, I went to the administration on multiple occasions and I was like, uh, I don't like this. And they were just like, oh, well, he's probably just a kid. And I'm like, uh, it's he's unfortunately he's not. I actually study this and he actually is a fascist. So that type of rabbit hole is really, really hard to get people out of because there's some bigger part to that, that we as a common citizen are not psychologists and we do not know how to access that part of them. But in many ways, it comes from a deep feeling of disenfranchisement and loneliness. It comes from the inability to connect with another person and they're replacing that feeling of connection with somebody who represents them. And that's the metonymy of Trump in many ways. Like he represents that. And that lack of representation or that lack of feeling like you're represented in government or in the world, in your physical space, uh, leads to grief when you lose. And right now you're writing about copium and how copium relates to Trump's last stand. And if you, how would you explain copium? <laughs> copium? Okay. Well, I'll give you the story. So you've probably seen the image. At the inauguration of Donald Trump in 2016, there was an image of a young woman screaming, you know, her, this woman, Jessica Starr, was yelling no, uh, pretty much at the top of her lungs. Um, and that she became a meme, a long-term Trump meme um, called uh, Screaming Liberal or Luke Crywalker. Um, and they use that in the terms of like, well, you have to cope. You have to, you have to get over it. And what coping is, is grief. And if you really want to go back to the old setups of that you want to go back to like the Nietzschean ways of looking at it there was no such thing at the time as bad grief that's why Charlie Brown always said good grief because grief is supposed to be the way in which we deal with tough situations grief is a process that we go all will go through and have gone through and sometimes whether that be big or small and the way to cure grief is time so in the in the moment grief is the heaviest and it slowly goes away and we cope with that Copium is a term that has come from the, the far right um, to describe the drug that you would take to cope, um, which is obviously a play on the word opium. And they you would inhale copium to kind of like try to speed up time. So instead of grieving like a normal person would, which is, you know, each person's different. It could take days, weeks, months, years. Uh, they want it over now. It's pain. It hurts. It's actual pain. And sometimes you don't know what pain feels like until, of course, you experience it. And then you can get exhaustion from it. So there is emotional exhaustion that occurs. Um, this happens with anybody with any loss. There's only so much you can grieve before you become numb to it. Um, I think in previous episodes of this or other things we've talked about is like, I grieved my loss of my program for many, many years. It was very, very difficult. The program's still there and it's awesome. But I'm talking about me leaving it was like just knowing that 
I couldn't ever have what I wanted back took a long time to get over. And a lot of times you blame yourself. A lot of times you try to figure out what else you could have done and where else you could have placed things. But in the end, you realize that the only thing that's going to solve this feeling of grief is that time eventually gives you exhaustion to it. And then you become stronger on the outside of it. The pain, if you're not used to it, hurts so bad you just want it over with. So they have come up with this copium and copium is often seen as lashing out. And lashing out in the terms of this is sort of like the way that the screaming liberal meme was, which is this emotional exp explosion all at once. The far right, since November 7th or ish, I guess that's when the uh, the, the media called the, uh, the election for Joe Biden, has gone through their stages of grief and copium, and they've been taking their copium. And that ex has been expressed in dozens of ways. This is where they're now converting in the copium world. A lot of the MAGA friendly and really deep underground dwellers have started re back referring to themselves as the Pepe's again. The Pepe itself, the Pepe caricature, is an icon of sadness, is an icon of usability to represent what it means to not really have someone on your side. You're a little green, kind of gross looking toad, that little frog that doesn't really have friends except for your close little knit group. And you're, you're just kind of only recognized by other Pepe's. It's just a, a, a fair amount of insular friends. When Trump was president, they could shed their Pepe-dom and represent themselves as people, as somebody who has a representative out there because somebody else was standing up for them. So Trump in 2019 tweeted a meme that has now become commonplace for them which is always used on far-right message boards and local hate groups, which is that Trump said, remember, they're not after me, they're after you, I'm just in the way. And when he tweeted that, people kind of took acknowledge that he's, he's martyring for us. He is somebody who stands in the way of the way that they, we've been disenfranchised. So the way they felt for many years, he's been taking the hit for them. So they got to, for, for years, they got to actually be out in public. They used to say, oh, they, they they would say some things like, oh my gosh, I don't have to be a Pepe at this time. I could be me because the guy who represents me is taking the hit for me. However, because he's my guy, I have to stand up for him too. So I can't let up. I can't spend a few minutes saying, you know, he's not, he's not like, he, he's going to be fine. He's always going to be in the situation of being a martyr. So I always have to make sure that I'm his follower. And if it's if it sounds religious, it's pretty well frameworked, but it's not the same. These aren't these aren't like cults or religions. These are just representation and disenfranchisement. And it's just being played out in a very almost cartoonish way. And this goes back to the God Emperor, right? That's the archetypal strong fatherly figure. Yeah. It's not necessarily a religion. I wouldn't even say I wouldn't even say it's fatherly so much as masculinity. Yeah, it's it's um Fatherly could be that way just because in many cases, generationally, some of these young men may not have had the good representation of a father. They may have had uh, a father who was potentially working all the time or um, didn't really give them the, the show them or teach them what toxic masculinity actually means or have the or or to give fathers the credit. They didn't may not have had the language to, to explain this to their sons. You know, this is this is new. What we're talking about now, when we talk about like what social justice is or the ability to respect each other. That's new language. We didn't have this language 10 years ago. So this language is very new and very offensive to some people because it's new. 
and any any new language is going to be offensive. So there's always going to be reactionary stances. So again, to give fathers credit where it's due is that maybe they just didn't have the ability to have this communication with their kids or their sons or whatever it is. And so in a version of masculinity is that they're trying to achieve a, an imaginary of that. And the only way to achieve an imaginary is through comic books, fiction, movies, basically, you know, representation, you know, you heard the term representation matters, you know, representation of the alpha male is representative of who you could be at a certain point in the last 20 years, it was kind of disenfranchisement kind of started showing people that there was no way to be an alpha male, the hegemony of the system, the structure of the state had disenfranchised these young men to almost a lifelong version of disenfranchisement. This is why we have the terms incel and volcel. And um, all these terms are because of disenfranchisement. They beca- they give, they're they from young men who don't have the language in order to interact in a public space. And unfortunately, many of us outside of my field don't have the tools to even speak about that in general. So Trump not only represented the alpha, but also represented the unachievable. These, these guys couldn't be billionaires. They couldn't have Melania as their wife. They couldn't have a gold escalator. They can't have presidency. But Trump is them in that form. And he was able to do that. And on top of that, father liberals. Like, it's amazing how much of that is. So could you imagine the more, like a more amazing God emperor from their perspective? Like there, there's no, there's no real better representative than that for them. So it, it, it makes, unfortunately makes too much sense, <laughs> but, but it's, it's because we don't have, or we haven't yet really engaged with making that language and that acceptability of masculinity to be more of a acceptable terminology and an acceptable way of raising your children. It's not something to be reactionary to, but rather acknowledge exists. And I think like that, again, that comes from reflexivity too, which is like learning that other people have opinions and who gives a shit is like something that is going to take time to get in here. I don't know what happens to these young men when they, when Trump is not in office, aside from them attempting to find Trump again or find a new Trump. Right. And what's so interesting about the alert to Trump is that this God King emerged in a way that was really organic. When Trump descended upon the escalator and immediately began to demonize immigrants and made enemies uh, from his very first stump speech, he helped to enable a certain community of uh, toxic masculinity and disenfranchised folks. And that organic energy helped to create the energy that created Pepe. And that's the magic of memes. And I think when we look at uh, the broader memescape, we're seeing a lot of moving elements that are moving so rapidly that it's hard for people that aren't totally online to begin to digest and understand how rapidly we've shifted from a Pepe evolving to corporate or brand-sponsored memes that are now more akin to Wendy's corporate Twitter account than an actual uh, grassroots or bottom-up approach. And whether that bottom-up approach be a far right or a far left or even a centrist Obama-type hope meme, I think what we're seeing just at the same time as we are seeing uh, Pepe's uh, or Trump's last stand and uh, people 
of that movement referring to them, themselves as Pepe's is this really interesting meme campaign surrounding uh, John Ossoff and the uh, uh, Georgia runoff. And it's something that I noticed uh, almost a year ago at this point, as shockingly as this sounds. It, shockingly enough, Michael Bloomberg ran for president this year, or I guess it's going to be last year. <laughs> it's been so long. <laughs> <laughs> and when he ran for president, he hired people to make and deploy memes for him and they and he wanted his meme makers to riff on his uh, billionaire status and tried to codify that he was on cool and so uh everyone from uh shithead steve to popular meme accounts posted and remixed popular memes like the bernie sanders i'm asking for your money um meme or i'm kindly asking for your support and it was quickly revealed that, okay, this is SpawnCon, this is inauthentic, and even though he tried to make it feel authentic because he was uh, creating uh, the paradox, it, it didn't work. Um, but now we're seeing uh, campaigns hire um, outside meme strategy people to bring uh, memetic strategy into their campaign in a different way than like traditional communications or public relations, and... I'm curious how you're interpreting um, this strategy of like meme cringe and in moving to an increasingly um, referential memetic space. Um, all memes uh, contain meta text and all memes refer to something else. But I was particularly disturbed this morning when I watched a stitch together video that um, was published by the Ossoff campaign that featured no no specific speech about any policy or any specific kind of uh, voter engagement, but rather it was this uh, interwoven video of South Park, X-Men, Lion King, Star Wars, Futurama, Simpsons. And it was just to encourage people to go vote to save democracy in the world. And I said, what is this? Yeah. So what do you, let me ask you, if you were to pick a cringe corporate meme, I have one that comes to mind immediately. What's yours? Oh, cringe corporate meme. All right, I'll tell you mine. Mine is baby peanut or junior peanut. Oh, that's a Gary Vaynerchuk meme. That was pretty. <laughs> yes, <Peanut>. yeah, but, <laughs> but is that not like a cringe meme? Like, is that not a meme campaign that has come from a corporation or at least a millennial esque agency? Oh, totally. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a cringe meme. <laughs> That's yeah. a top. I think that's top cringe meme. Do you have a, do you have any other examples? I think the cringe meme for me would be Bloomberg. I think yeah. I think that's peak. That's a, that's a flash in the pan. Peak cringe meme. That's I would say that's the peak cringiest, only because it only existed in one format in one way, and appeared so briefly. Like it is the. It's not even yin and yang because there's no sharing parts here. Uh, but it is the ant antithesis to Bernie's. I am once again asking you for financial support. <laughs> yes, um, because the I actually was asked about this from uh, Picture Starts in a memes report, a year-end memes report, and I think that two memes really stood out. And this isn't the time for the second one, so I'll just focus on the first one. The sure. second one is the, the Karen meme, but the first one is the Bernie Sanders meme that happened in January, which now seems like it was like twenty years ago. But that um, that meme. The I'm once again asking for your financial support is a perfect organic meme there, there. You can't really have much more of an example of what it looks like for a meme to be created in a political standing. 
he didn't i mean every, you have to kind of like when you have that that odd sense that you're always on display and i think we're always in that way where we understand that anything we say or do at this point could be memefied. I mm -hmm. think that's just an unfortunate reality of just the mediated existence of everything. What was once media studies in which everything could be mediated was always filtered through the gatekeepers. You, you can't always be embarrassed in television or you couldn't always be amplified into those spaces without a gatekeeper, a news reporter, a television producer, somebody had to bring you to the people. And now it could be anything for any reason, all of a sudden, there you are. You're the main character of Twitter for the day. As uh, I can't remember who said it, but it is uh, one of Ryan Roderick's favorite quotes, which is like every every day there's a main character of Twitter. Hopefully today is not your day. You know, right. like <laughs> that's uh, so that's organic memeing or organic um, main characterizations or mediated existence can happen at any given point. And so organic being there's no intention; it just sort of happens. So. At the time, Bernie's campaign was making videos. I mean, that's the tool they were using. And the tool they used was not only perfect, but accidentally perfect. And by that, I mean, he was walking down the street with this, his great, this great coat. I, I love this coat. You know, it's, it's one of these really great warm coats. It's very Bernie when you see it. And the video was captioned. And the caption was perfectly split. So it says, I am once, I am once again asking you. And then the second line is, for your to continue your financial support. So that line break was perfect for people to wipe wipe out that second line and add whatever text they wanted to, which we've seen that that format is now a consistent repeat format over and over and over again throughout the year. Uh, regardless of who the character is, subtitle memes are a genre now. And that became a political engagement booster for him because it became one, it still kept the meta reference to the thing, which is no matter how many times you use the meme, you're still understanding that Bernie's asking for financial support. That's its base meaning. But every iteration of it just brought you attention to the fact the video exists and the meme exists. And it became so usable to the point where they were replacing it with cats and other things and dinosaurs and who knows what that and mixing memes with it. It's invert. Is Bloomberg, <laughs> who literally has billions of dollars, who doesn't need your financial support but needs your cultural support. And so he went to the meme lords, uh, sunny side up shithead Steve, like you mentioned and said, uh, Miss, like basically had his team. It's not Mr. Bloomberg, but he had his team reach out to them as if they were Bloomberg and say, hi, Mr. Sonny, can you make a meme for Bloomberg? And the format was identical to all of them because they just, I don't know if it was a complaint, like this idea where it was like, oh, this isn't going to work anyway, or the idea of, well, we can make a new format that's recognizable. Because if you're going to make a meme, it's got to be replicated. So the first one was, I'm going to put him on notice. I'm just going to show everybody that I did my work because I made a meme by screenshotting my DMs and it exists. So the format exists solely as a DM meme, which is usually meant for receipts. It's a Twitter meme for like you, this you or receipt based memeing. But this in this case, it was like, it implicated that there is no other way to make Bloomberg cool. <laughs> you know, so there's, it was kind of like a shallow, unfortunate one. And so that's a corporate, that's a corporate meme. To me, that's as cheese factory as Mr. Peanut, baby peanut, junior peanut, whatever the hell you want to call him. Ossoff's team. I don't want to say they're doing the wrong thing. I'm not going to go off and say, you know, 
meme creation is a bad technique. It isn't. I think meme creation does reach a certain and specific audience. And I think if you can engage with a Twitter audience or an algorithm, and that's your tool to do so, then, hey, good for you. But it's just not, it's not long tail. It's just too short tailed. And I think his approach is at least more creative than Bloomberg's because it's diverse. I've seen several of the memes so far and they're different each time. But this, I, I don't know how to say this. And by the time, and I guess we're going to know soon after this, this is, this piece is out, but it's like, I just don't know if this is the time for that right now with Ossoff and Warnock against uh, Loeffler and P Purdue, because this is, there's a lot more at stake and treating it as, look, I study memes. I could tell you this, it's shallow. It's, it's really shallow and it's debased and it doesn't really have much cultural value at all, it has more of a referential value. And if you can't bring the reference back to what your actual meaning is, you're wasting time. So if your meme doesn't reinforce whatever the hell you're trying to say over and over and over again, then you're just making Mr. Peanut. I'm, you're still gonna buy planters. It doesn't matter if Mr. Peanut's there or not. You could be making memes about toilet paper. People are still gonna wipe their asses. So it doesn't matter what that does because the message is just corporate. And to me, that's, I, I think it's just, I, I hope this doesn't become a political trend. I have a lot to ask you based on this because my first is my first question is as, as you say, memes are debased, but if we are, or if, um, if consultants and, um, meme campaigns are creating memetic campaigns that are based solely on corporate or referential material. What, how does using Star Wars create or enable um, associations of good and evil to a particular campaign trying to say something without saying anything at all and conflating a central message? Oh, cool. He's the meme guy, but that doesn't necessarily drive a vote. And if that doesn't drive a vote, then you're not saying anything at all. You're only promoting Disney. Or, or even, even more shallow than that, in 2012, when Jason Russell asked his little son, Gavin, on camera, who are the bad guys? And little Gavin said, the Star Wars people. He was trying to frame out a larger construct of storytelling in Coney 2012. This technique has been used. You're trying to use an overblown storytelling trope of hero's journey to embed it into your things. And that's honestly, look, it's not like we're stupid. Memes all come down to the same storytelling aspects. We're all just trying to engage with the hero's journey. And Asaf, I'm sure, is just trying to engage with his hero's journey, which leads to an election. But you can't be using corporatized concepts like Disney or Star Wars, which is Disney anymore, because let me give a side story. Let me explain how Disney's going to do this, okay? Or how this happens. I once heard from a friend of mine who is an investor that you, you, meaning me, you, uh, us, can't just invest in oil. Okay, we can't. We want to. But if you decided today, you're like, oh my God, I have $10,000. I'm going to invest in oil. Let's say you did it. They would see your tiny little hit, little $10,000, boop. Oh, look at this little guy. He just invested in oil. And then they will bet on your short. They will short you. They will start investing in the insurance on the stock market going down, and they will take your 10000 they will make their money and you will be out $10,000 with no money. And then they'll, as if it never happened, they'll continue the next day. You are too small for their stories. You are too small for their market. So if you are playing with corporate media like Star Wars, Disney, and you're using them as your shill to talk about heroes journeys or storytelling or even some sort of aspect, 
people's minds don't turn to the political reference, they turn to Star Wars. And Star Wars tomorrow, if you bet your entire fate on them and said this is the hero's journey, tomorrow they will make a movie about Luke being the bad guy. It's just, it doesn't matter. Their, their game is bigger than your game. So when we make memes using corporate affect or corporate <laughs> like references, you're basically saying, I, I'm leaving my storytelling into the hands of somebody who knows how to tell stories, and I'm just a part of that storytelling thing. If you're going to be a memorable, let, let me give you the exact difference here. When people talk about the Bernie meme, they know who Bernie is. He spent years defining himself as a human being who became a character. If you can't be recognized without your memes, you're doing it wrong. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And to the the second part of the question that I'm I'm dying to ask is more of a curiosity than uh than a proven fact or I I'm just curious what you think about the potential not to not use these mimetic tactics or not to deploy memes or meme strategy on a campaign, but when you're working with corporatized memes or trying to create referential material, my worry is that you more often than not end up with Pokemon Go to the polls or the high <laughs> hopes dance. Yes. And, and you end up creating a mockery or cringe rather than a truly the, – the Bernie meme – was organic. It, it happened by mistake. There was no one, unless they were so far advanced and playing 4D chess that we're not aware or keen to it. But that just probably happened. Um, but if Pokemon Go to the polls was, was an attempt to try to rally people and it ended up backfiring. Or you and and so my question is, don't you risk doing something like that or falling into a trap like that more frequently than you end up with some kind of memorable, viral, longstanding cultural hit? What you're talking about is memes by committee. And you're talking about anything that's made by committee. And so somebody once told me the best piece of committee work ever made is the St. James Bible. Um, <laughs> because it's the only thing that still sticks around to this day. And it was made by committee. It was, it was basically a rewriting of an older text that combined many other texts and became something that's usable mass in, in, in mass. So when Pokemon, I, I don't know who came up with that. I'm sure that's out there and I, I honestly don't want to embarrass them in any way. So I don't, I don't want to say anything because it was a, it was a valid attempt. Um, but Pokemon go to the polls or. What was the other example you gave? The uh, uh, high hope stance. Oh, hi oh God, Pete, Mayor Pete ruins Iowa. Um, that's the uh, when you do any type of corporatized approach to this, it becomes usable to the masses and unusable to the niche. The only value you'll ever get on any of these campaigns is to your niche, is to your is to your group, is to people who will actually take grassroots action. If you change them, they will change the people around you. Politics does not work by broadcasting public actions. Politics in the United States works by broadcasting niche tactics that get used because they feel like this is the representative they've asked for, and they will take grassroots action to engage their fellow people. They will use call banks, they will knock door to door, they'll canvas. And because they truly believe in this, they will get others to believe in it as well. If it's downstream from a committee-based action, You'll get a again a, a very short virality from it, but it doesn't stick. There's no stickiness to it. There's no cultural desire to participate because there's no reward. What's the reward? You're gonna get embarrassed on a TikTok dance. It's like it's not. It doesn't exactly do anything for a political endeavor. It does enough for political attention. Great. Now you have attention. Cool. You did it. But 
it doesn't actually do the thing. And the thing in this, like I said, this is about stakes. It's what uh, is what is at stake. And what is at stake here is more than just getting attention. If I were to give advice, and I honestly, this, this is coming out too late for us to give actual advice. But if I were to give advice, it would be focus on your, your who you are as a character. Like Biden's, I think one of Biden's busy, biggest success of 2020 was not appearing in public too often. <laughs> and and this is the shock that I think, to bring it back to the beginning, I think the big reason why there's a lot of copium being being taken by the far right is because they don't get it. They don't get why somebody who didn't appear on TV, didn't appear in place, how did he get the most amount of votes in, in US history? And it what they don't get is that the same reason Trump got elected is the same reason Trump didn't get reelected. That, that type of behavior is not long-term. You can't be a grim personality for too long. So more people, I think it's evident in many ways that more people voted to not have Trump again than they voted for Biden. But Biden's success in that realm was because he didn't say anything. They Biden's character as a politician is decades old. It's not like we don't know what he does. We don't. We know what his policies are. We know crappy things he's done in the past. We know about the ways in which he he enforced. A lot of things that we live downstream from today, including like carceral lives or some of the ways in which we deal with our taxes and stuff is is from old policy endeavors of Biden's past. But how do you make them so it doesn't become a meme in 2020? Just don't talk. Don't say anything. Don't bring it up. So the more you hide, the more you become the character that they the people can recognize because they only remember the things you're showing them. So where Bernie has succeeded is in a similar multi-decade political life is that he's been consistent. We know who he is. He doesn't have to change who he is. We know where his stances are. We know what he fights for. We know that for most of our politicians. We know who Trump, we knew who Trump was too. And he got elected because we knew who Trump was. But I think a lot of this character management doesn't happen in the digital space. Pokemon go to the polls by Hillary was a huge mistake. Hillary could have been elected if she just stayed as Hillary, like she just didn't have to, she didn't have to be a, a medicist. She didn't have to call anybody deplorable. She didn't have to make, she didn't have to release an article about what Pepe the Frog is. I think that was a huge mistake too, because her campaign tried to define things that didn't belong to her. Memes exist, whether you like it or not, and whether you're in that space or not. And you have to be you, you have to create your character and you're stronger than what anybody can ever say about you so long as you have the ability to retain your character beyond the meme. And like I said, a little too late for us to give advice to him because the most I know about Ossoff is he's a nice guy and he's, you know, he's going to be a much better choice than either Warnock or Loeffler. But it's still one of those things where it's, it, I mean, how hard is it when Loeffler's husband owns the New York Stock Exchange? How hard is it to just not be that? You don't have to use these tactics, you know? So it's, to me, it's like, I think we are, uh, same way that some people like like feel like it's been a good time to, to be a news reporter while Trump's in the office, because you can constantly use that. My, I know studying memes at this time is, is both great and not great, because on one hand, it's great. I get to talk about it endlessly. On the other hand, we shouldn't be talking about them. These things exist for a reason. And the more we amplify them, the more that people want to commodify them and create them to do their do the thing. And the thing doesn't ever do what they want it to. Every meme exists organically. We have to, to engage with that means you either are so intuitive, like you said, it's 4D chess, or you have to be okay with what happens. 
And I think we're going to have a lot of discussions this year because memes are going to continue to proliferate. And I think developing critical meme literacies and having these conversations <laughs> over the course of the year where we can speak about meta text and what is referring to what and what is void of meaning and what actually has meaning will be of the utmost importance. And I think this is a great path. So Jamie, thanks so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thank you. I think, I mean, you just said it. I think 2021, my fight will be meme literacies. I think we need not just meme literacies, but critical media literacy and meme literacy engagement. They have to be combined. They have to be part and parcel of how we talk and, and part of how we create new language. So thank you. I mean, I love to, I mean, I love talking about this. I hope that we get to continue this conversation throughout the entire year and we see how this develops. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. You can follow us on social media at DigiVoidMedia and write to us at DigiVoidMedia at gmail.com. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much for joining us. 